Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Coming up on today's episode, I'll be joined by a legend. Her name is Jane Goodall. She's the woman who devoted her life to the study of chimpanzees in Tanzania. She'll be telling me all about her journey to Africa as a young woman in the 1950s and how she spent her years living with and studying these animals. It's a really special interview, so do stay tuned for that. But first... Irish Times journalist Neve Towie was here in the studio to tell me about her six-week meat-free challenge and to talk about a couple of other stories of the week. Neve Towie, thanks very much for coming in to talk to us. Now, you are doing a bit of an experiment, mm-hmm. a six-week experiment, and it's the time of year for it because everyone's trying to change themselves and make themselves different and better. So what are you doing? Uh, yeah, so I've decided to give up meat for six weeks, as if January wasn't bad enough. Uh, so I'm doing this experiment for the health supplement in the Irish Times. I'm pescatarian at the moment for two weeks, then I'll be vegetarian for two weeks, and then I'll be vegan for two weeks. Um, so I'm about a week and a half into it now, and it's not as bad as I thought it would be, um, though I'm not looking forward to the vegan uh, uh, segment of it. But um yeah, it really like I just wanted to see if I could do it. Um, as I said in the column yesterday, it's not something I don't have a big ethical belief in not eating meat. It's nothing to do with that. I felt like maybe I was over relying on it. Um, I was kind of shocked to see that the guidelines only recommend a palm sized am- amount of meat every day. I definitely would eat more than that. I think um, we all would when we go for yeah, a meat. Yeah. yeah. And even like lunches, I, I was always eating meat for lunch. Probably, there's definitely no need to be doing that. Um, so. I'm a week and a half into it and it's going grand. Um, I'm not starving as I thought I would be. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's thrown up lots of um, kind of internal questioning as well around the whole um, supporting the agri-sector or not and the issue around climate change. And it's not something that's really all that easy to get solid answers to. And a lot of people are saying, oh, how could cows be producing more uh, greenhouse gases than transport or air miles? And um, I'm not an expert in any of it, so I don't know. But uh, like, I'm definitely interested in, in trying at least to get to the bottom of that over the course of the column as well. So, um, Well, you're a country girl, now a country mm, woman, mm. and you sort of a lot of people in your circle, family-wise, would rely on the meat and dairy industry for a yeah. livelihood. So I suppose there's a conflict there for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like I said in the column, my dad works in a meat factory. My mum used to work in a chicken factory. My boyfriend's dad is a farmer, um, beef farmer. And I mean, if everyone was to do what I'm doing now and cut out meat, none of them would have jobs. Uh, so of course that 
that that throws up massive issues for me and that I think it's only fair to, to try it and I think without trying it I won't be able to really get to the bottom of it and it's it's actually brought up lots of really interesting conversations with people um, just this morning someone in the kitchen came up to me and said you know I've actually cut out a lot of meat but at the same uh, questions like you did I was reared on a farm and saw no issue with seeing your nice little pet calves being brought off to slaughter you know it's not something that um, it was all part of the natural process for me growing up um, and so it's definitely a difficult one to get my head around but um, it'll be interesting to see how you feel at the end of six weeks we might come back to you I mean you're in yeah. the easy phase of it now I think because you've got fish N- the following two weeks you've probably never done that before have you lived with no fish, no meat mm. at all. No, no, definitely not. I don't think I've even got a full day without it before. <laughs> like to be honest with you, it never would have crossed my mind. Um, like that's, I'd love to get out of the end of it that I'd be comfortable doing a day or two a week without anything. I think there's no harm in that, um, and I think it's a good compromise between uh, both issues. Um, and, and I'm really curious to see how you survive the two weeks of vegan because that's yeah. a whole other shooting match. Isn't I it? know, I mean. and I know I'm beginning to question why I ever committed <laughs> it to it in the first place. I think you have to have a really strong ethical belief in it yeah. to in order to go vegan so why I which I don't <laughs> so um that one's going to be really difficult the other thing is there are a few more places just in terms of eating mm. out now as well mm. that you can go in Dublin um where you can find great vegan food I saw a place down on uh, Dorset Street the Vish shop which does vegan fish and chips oh, if you can gross. believe gross yeah. no but you might be I think you have heard nice things about but, it but like, I just don't eat any of that <laughs> I don't know I'd prefer to be hungry than eat fake food um <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know if it's fake it's, food. It is really trendy, and, and you'll that's have to go in to get the Burger King well. v- a vegan oh, yeah. burger as well, which, uh, which is small vegan, print actually. is not vegetarian, no. not social vegetarian. Um, yeah, it, it's it's very trendy at the moment, especially in Dublin. It's very trendy. You to say that vegan. so derisively. It is really, yeah, and I anything that's trendy, I'm in, immediately uh, suspicious. I'm suspicious of it. So um, yeah, I have to say, I go back to the fact that you are a sort of resident, resident country girl. I mean, it sounds very notiony, this uh, vegan. Complete notions. Veget- yeah, I know. They won't let me in down at home once all of this uh, hits the second pages. <laughs> but yeah, I think, but the, having said that, like um, my aunt, last year, the year before even, uh, went on holidays in India and ate like delicious veg- vegetarian food for her whole time over there and hasn't touched meat since she came back and feels amazing, feels so much better. Like she was, she's from uh, Balhadreen as well and Roscommon was reared off uh, on a farm. So um, I don't think it's necessarily strictly limited to Dublin either. There are lots of, there's actually lots of really great businesses uh, down the West who are um, starting up um with vegetarians in mind um, and there's a lot of sports stars who are taken to it as well and I, I like that is beginning to change the mindsets of men down at home who would be GA players or whatever um, that they are now able to see that well you can get what you need off plant-based proteins um, and there are other options out there yeah, that's uh, there's no denying that eating a significant amount of red meat every day is it can't be good for you um, and I think it is good to diverse and our diets are bound to change over the years and that's not just limited to cities um, that's nationwide so yeah. um, 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one to have a look at. We'll come back and tell us in, in six weeks what, how you feel. The other thing I actually wanted to talk to you about as well is a very moving story over Christmas where Kathleen Keyes wrote a letter that went absolutely viral to the Irish Times. Can you tell people who might not have heard, but I'm sure everyone knows the letter I'm referring to. Yeah. And you have a connection to to her too. Yeah, Kathleen is um, actually from Fairy Mountain County, Scammon originally. She is my boyfriend's aunt. Um, and... Um, all three of Kathleen's children were born with cystic fibrosis. It's a, it's a disease of the lungs. I'm sure you you know about yeah. it. Um, and uh, Grania, Dara, and Fergal all died. Um, Fergal most recently, just last year, and so Kathleen has been left completely bereft. Um, I'm not sure I've ever come across that level of grief. Um, I didn't know it existed. Um, and she is an incredibly strong, articulate. A giving woman. Um, she wrote a letter to the Irish Times just before Christmas encouraging people to give up the consumerism and to just close their doors and stay in with their families. And um, she wrote so beautifully just about, you know, slamming the car door shut and walking across the gravel at Christmas is actually, uh, don't take it for granted because she doesn't have that and never will have that. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, we were... Um, she was on the Late Late Show last week and she's gotten an incredible reaction to her letter. Um, like It really feels like the whole nation has been giving her a hug over the last three weeks um, and it's had a, a big impact on her and I think it really it really soothed her Christmas. This would have been her second Christmas on her own. Not on her own, she goes to family for Christmas, but um, uh, dealing with that level of grief and I think it really it really helped her um, and yeah I'd just like to say thank you to everybody who got in touch with her she's had incredible offers I mean we've been getting emails saying want to bring her out for lunch want to bring her for weekends away Ron O'Gara rang her to see if she'd come to La Rochelle which she thought was a nightclub in town <laughs> and uh, yeah stacks of letters coming in and all these people ringing her one, one lady wrote to her uh, last Friday it was really funny she got a letter um, and it just said Kathleen Keys Bray County Wicklow and at the bottom was please find her underlined <laughs> um, and they found her and it, it turned out to be another woman who had lost two children to cystic fibrosis um, so so it, it, it's out there that 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 level of suffering it, it's incredible and it's hard to get your head around and we don't because a lot of people just aren't able to express mm. but mm. she wrote like you say so beautifully and it just I think at a time when every it was at that moment when we were all rushing around you know buying all this crap thinking we don't have enough and mm. it sort of it seemed to stop everyone in mm. their tracks mm. um, and I know Colette Brown on Twitter kind of encouraged people to write to her and that you've been getting those letters yeah and it's so wonderful oh, to see the and reaction. that like they're coming in from America and Germany and Holland and um a station in America interviewed her the BBC Women's Hour wanted to talk to her like it has been incredible the reaction like it's so it's heartening to see how nice people can be as well and how loving people can be and how generous they can be and they have given her all of that yeah. and they have given her hope and uh, affection at a time when everything is so dark for Kathleen um, and, and it has it, well it has been um I'd like to think that this might open a new chapter in her life. I hope it does. She's an incredible writer. She, I, I always knew that anyways, and she has a real strength in expressing herself. Um, she's written poetry for years to herself. Um, she has an incredible mind. Uh, she's a, a really strong woman, and she has a story to tell. 
um, which at the bottom of it all has a lot of hope as well because she's still here and fighting and I don't know how she does it but uh, yeah. you'd wonder how when you wake up every morning mm. and with, with that on you just remind us again of um, the children and the ages they were when they died as yeah. well because I think that's the thing it was all that time she did have with them that made it yeah. all the more unbearable yeah. in a way uh, Grania died in 2002 she was 15 um, Dara died in 2012 he was 19 at the time and Fergal died just last year last December um, he was 31 and um, Fergal was on a, a a transplant list all three of them picked up this cepatia which is a bacterial infection and it would have ruled them out from transplants like just to top it off that the, the, the and, and the treatment of cystic fibrosis was it has come on so much since Grania died um, to the point where Fergal was actually eligible last year. He was on a transplant waiting list. Uh, he got called and they always call three people when, when their lungs become available and he didn't get it that time and he, he never got a second call. Um, so... Um, she spent a lifetime caring for these children. It was a very intense disease um, in terms of care. Uh, they had to put hours of work into physio. Like sh- She describes it really well, like smacking their backs to uh, get up the mucus every day. Um, you know, they didn't have like the same lives as as other children had. There was a lot of time spent at home and an awful lot of time spent in hospitals, months of their lives. And it's important to say that these kids were incredible kids as well as it like how could they not be having you know you know their mom um they were so bright wickedly bright like they 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 would have missed a lot of time at school and did incredibly well in their leaving certs like they, they were they were incredible children um and uh I can't even begin to fathom like what the loss must be for yeah, her. But I think like you said the story of hope as well and the fact that she still is here and that this national hug almost as you described Mm. it has come in to to soothe her and obviously not completely heal her but give her something uh, going forward in her life um, and to know that there are people out there just feeling for her yeah. and um, supporting her it just must be yeah. great so I just thought it was really interesting your connection with that story mm-hmm. but Neve, thank you very much for coming in good luck with the next <laughs> few weeks especially the vegan bit no stop because yeah. I just psychologically <laughs> and ph- philosophically you're so not that kind I of person know, I've already given up on it and I haven't <laughs> even started no I'm sure you're going to be brilliant and it's going to be uh, and maybe it'll change some of your habits for, for the better in future as well but Neve Towie thank you very much thank you The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Our next guest, Jane Goodall, is known for her years spent living among chimpanzees in Tanzania. Now aged 85, she has devoted over six decades to the study and preservation of these fascinating animals. And just before I spoke to her, I had to do a bit of a sound check with the microphones. Uh, We were at the Simmons Leadership Conference and I asked her to do a little bit of speaking just so I could check the levels. And because she is who she is and she just sees the natural world everywhere she goes, she just had a little uh, observations about the trees and the birds outside. I'm looking at the trees, but I'm rather disappointed there aren't any birds. I've seen two crows. And then when I went close, one big brown bird flew by, but I had no way of knowing what it was. Thrush, I should think. They're nice trees, nice autumn colours. 
I could listen to her all day. Now, beginning her adventure in 1957, Jane travelled over to Africa by boat to visit a friend in Kenya. And while she was there, she met Louis Leakey, a paleontologist who just happened to be looking for a chimpanzee researcher. And with that chance meeting, her life changed forever. In 1960, Jane began the first ever close proximity study of chimpanzees, which is still continuing to this day in Gombe National Park. Without any scientific background or education, she faced criticism along the way for her unusual study practices. She immersed herself in the lives of the chimps, gave them names and documented their unique personalities. And She was the first person to document the animal's use of tools. Having spent her life devoted to chimps, she now advocates for ecological preservation through the Jane Goodall Institute. I caught up with her, as I said, while she was here in Dublin for the Simmons Leadership Conference at the City West Hotel. And here she is, Jane Goodall. Jane, thank you very much for speaking to me. I'm really interested in, um, well, lots of things, but first of all, your early childhood, if you don't mind going back a bit. And what first inspired you to want to study animals? Well, I was born loving animals. I had an amazingly supportive mother and uh, she found books for me to read about animals. So, you know, there was no TV when I was growing up. It hadn't been invented. And the first book that really inspired me to go to Africa was the story of Dr. Doolittle. It was the first book I ever owned. I still have it. And then when I was 10, by then it was World War II. We didn't have any money. My father joined the army. We went to live with my my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, Mum, Judy and I. And I saved up my few tiny pennies of pocket money and spent hours at the weekend on Saturday in this little second-hand bookshop that I found. Otherwise, books came from the library. And found Tarzan of the Apes when I was 10. Fell in love, decided I would grow up, go to Africa and live with wild animals. Everybody laughed at me, except Mum, who said, well, if you really want something like this, you're going to have to work awfully hard, take advantage of all opportunities, but don't give up. She sounds like a very um, good person for someone like you to have as a mother. Mm, she was amazing. What made her like that? Why did she not laugh at you and tell you to, to not be silly and you just get married? and just, I, I don't know. Probably her parents. Yeah. So you did that then. You worked hard and saved up. What was your trajectory to getting to a place where you were with the animals that you so loved? I was good at school, but I didn't like it. I wanted to be out with my dog but I passed all my exams. I couldn't go to university because there wasn't enough money. It was enough money for a boring old secretarial course in London. Got a job. Uh, actually, interestingly, it was a job with documentary films, so I didn't actually have to be a secretary. It was much nicer. I, um, I learned all about how you make a film, or in those days, celluloid, you know, turning handles very different from today. And then I got a letter from a school friend inviting me to Kenya. Couldn't save money in London, went home, worked as a waitress in a hotel for about four or five months, and finally saved up enough for a return trip to Africa. So, again, it was pretty amazing. Mum let me go. I mean, today young people go off all the time, but they didn't then. Young men did. Young men went on, what was it called, the tour or something. But girls didn't. And 
So I was 23. A 23-year-old back then was about like a 17-year-old today. Very naive we were. And it was by boat because there were no planes flying back and forth with tourists. So it took about a month. And then I was fortunate enough after I'd been there about a month staying with my friend to hear about and meet Dr. Lewis Leakey. And amazingly, he gave me the opportunity to study chimps. Do you remember landing in Kenya and the culture shock of that? I mean, like you say, 23, but really 17. And you'd come from so completely a different place. What were your what are your memories of that? Well, it wasn't a culture shock because it was being my dream. I dreamed of Africa, so it was like going home, really. Yeah. Leakey let me go on his expedition to Olduvai Gorge, which is in the middle of the Serengeti. And in those days, there wasn't a road, there wasn't a track. It was just wild, expansive plain with this um, it's part of the Rift Valley, Olduvai Gorge, where he was searching for fossils. And all the animals were there. And it was, I think it was the day I met a young male lion and I was walking out with the other one, young English girl, and he followed us for about, I don't know, 500 metres, something like that. And I think it was that evening that Leakey decided I was the person he'd been looking for. And he probably wasn't expecting that person to be a young woman from England. No, he always, he he deliberately wanted uh, a woman and he wanted one who hadn't been to college because he didn't want a mind that was cluttered up by the very reductionist thinking in those days of, of people studying behaviour. So he was very wise on that score. Yeah. So, you know, and I think if you look at women's role in evolution, you had to be a good mother. That was the main purpose. And so built-in characteristics which probably help research on animals is patience and understanding the needs of a little creature before it can speak and also keeping an eye on relationships within the family or people immediately around so that if um, little, little Bobby got too close to Uncle Tom when he's in a bad mood, Mum could go and prevent any arguments. <laughs> you uh, say that the lion followed you and that's when he decided that you were the person. Um, was there any part of you that was, as many people would be, absolutely terrified? I know it was your dream, but still. No, ab- totally, 100%. No, everybody seems to think that because it was new and things, I had to be scared. Other people were scared for me. In fact, the British authorities refused to allow me to go for ages. And in the end, they said, all right, she has has to have somebody with her, though. She can't go alone into the forest. Never heard of anything so ridiculous. So who volunteered but Mum? She came. We had money for six months, leaky God. And she came for four of those six months. How did she get on? Well, she was, you know, she had a, a pioneering spirit, I suppose you'd call it. We shared a tent, an old ex-army tent, with just a bit of canvas on the floor, and then if you wanted air, you rolled up the side flaps and uh, tied them with tape. And then came air, spiders, centipedes, snakes, and so on. Very soon the baboons, who are very entrepreneurial, they realised 
there was food in our camp. And, you know, the males have great long canines like that. So they started invading the camp. And we had one cook, because the British in the nearby town, they refused to let us go without a cook. It wasn't right. And he got sacked from every household in Kigoma because he loved cooking sherry and used to get tiddly. <laughs> but he was a brilliant cook. So they said, well, this is fine. Jane and her mother will have a wonderful cook and there won't be any cooking sherry. Took him two weeks to find a very, very potent alcoholic beverage made of fermented banana. <laughs> so there was mum with snakes, scorpions, um, and uh, centipedes, baboons, and a slightly inebriated cook. How did she cope? Well, she just coped. She started a clinic for the fishermen. She wasn't a doctor or a nurse, but we had a medical family, and... Uh, she became known as the White Witch Doctor because she made some amazing cures with patients. And when you first got involved with the chimps, um, was it kind of, uh, I suppose, maybe you said you love animals. Was it a bit of a, a love thing immediately when you saw them for the first time? Did you know, did you sense that this was going to be such... No, because all they did was run away. The moment they saw me, they vanished into the undergrowth. That's where Mum was really useful because she pointed out I was learning quite a lot from this peak with my binoculars. And so she boosted my morale, and that was that was really good in those early days. So she encouraged you not to be despairing about it? Well, I wasn't despairing except for the money running out. I mean, I knew I'd succeed if I had time. That was no question. But would I get it done before the six months' money ran out? Because if I didn't, there was no way the money would be renewed. It was crazy anyway, so... So explain what you were trying to do that hadn't been done before. Well, nobody had watched the behaviour of chimps in the wild. Nobody. And uh, Leakey believed that there was an ape-like, human-like ancestor, common ancestor, about six million years ago, which everybody believes now. But people didn't then. And um, so he thought, well, if Jane finds behaviour in chimps that's similar, same as that in humans today, maybe it was in the common ancestor, and that would give him a better guess at how early humans behaved, whose fossils he was digging up. So tell me about um, the first signs that you saw that this was probably true or this was right. Well, that happened slowly. One, one chimp began to lose his fear. And the breakthrough was when I saw him using and making tools to fish for termites. Because at that time it was thought humans and only humans used and made tools. So that brought in the National Geographic. Leakey could ask them for money and they agreed to support the research. When the money ran out, they sent a Dutch filmmaker, photographer, Hugo van Lauwijk, who became my husband, and uh, to, to document what I was increasingly learning. Because I think as David Greybeard lost his fear, the others would be ready to run. But if David happened to be in their group, and they're all changing groups all the time, I suppose they thought, well, he's just calm, so maybe she's not so scary after all. Tell me about the termites again, because that's a very key um, discovery that you made or observed, what they were actually doing. Breaking off 
breaking off grass stems, pushing them down into a hole. It's just one time of year when the soldier ants extend passages to the surface of the nest. Then they seal it lightly over until it rains and then they open it up and the winged ones fly away to mate and start new colonies. So then the chimple coven open up the little covering, push down the grass stem, eat the termites, but then pick off a leafy twig and then you have to remove the leaves. So that's the beginning of making a tool. And this had been never heard of or imagined before. The idea well, we that they were could... defined as man, the toolmaker. Yeah. So a lot of people didn't believe. They said, well, why should we believe her? She doesn't have a degree, straight out from England. She's a girl. But once they saw the photos, they had to believe. And tell me about other things, um, when they became more used to you and then you could observe them more closely. Well, then David sort of introduced me to all in a way. I mean, he didn't, but it was as though, thanks to him, I got to know his companions out in the forest. Goliath, who was his closest friend, top-ranking male, the old female Flo, with her bulbous nose, began to realise that postures and gestures of communication are the same, kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting one another, shaking the fist, swaggering, begging, all exactly the same as us and used in the same context. You mentioned Goliath and Flo there, and just for listeners, you're talking about the chimps, because you didn't call them numbers, which is what people did before then. You named them. Well, that's what happened when, after two years, Leakey told me I had to go to Cambridge. And he said there was no time for an undergraduate degree, so he got me a PhD in ethology, and I didn't <laughs> even know what ethology was. I couldn't <laughs> Google it. There was still no laptops in those days, certainly no way of communicating. We had to communicate either by post or, if it was really exciting, a telegram. Otherwise, it take, took two weeks for a letter to arrive and get a reply. Uh, Leakey is such a character because I love the way he says, no time for an undergraduate, yeah. straight into the PhD. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me... Um, so anyway, I was very nervous when I got there and immediately I was told by many that I'd done it all wrong. Chimp should have numbers. They, you can't talk about their personality, their mind or their emotion because those are unique to us. And it was my childhood teacher who taught me to stand up to these professors who, though they were very knowledgeable in many things, I knew that in this respect they were totally wrong. And that teacher was my dog, Rusty. How did Rusty teach you that? Hmm? How did Rusty teach you that? Well, you can't. Have you had a dog? I actually, yes, when I was a child, but not now. Well, don't you know that they have personalities, minds and emotions? So that was uh, yeah. the teaching. But, but I'm talking about standing up to those um, professors because some people would feel, even now, intimidated by people who profess yes, to are. know a lot I know of they things. are still. Well, I was fortunate enough in that my supervisor, who was my sternest critic, agreed to come out to Gombe. He said he learnt more in two weeks than the rest of his previous life put together. So then he helped me to think and write like a scientist whilst maintaining my values. And Jane, what was your goal? Because you were clearly very driven in this whole time. 
you what did you want to achieve and what did you want the world to know? Well, I wanted to understand chimp behaviour. It was that simple, no more than that to begin with. In order that understanding that would do what? What, what was the no, reason? I just wanted to learn about chimps. I mean, nobody was out there studying anything. So there was no reason behind it at, at the beginning. Leaky had a reason, but he didn't tell it to me. What was his reason? Well, like I say, so that he could better imagine the behaviour of early humans. Right. That's what he wanted. But you weren't on that no, no. mission? I was just absolutely fascinated by these amazing beings, especially finding they had a dark side, they were capable of killing each other and war, but also love and compassion. Tell us about the dark side. What did you observe? The males patrol the boundaries of a territory, and if they see one or two individuals of the neighbouring group, they chase very silently and very highly motivated to catch that individual, and very often an older female. And then a gang attack which left the victim to die of wounds inflicted. It was really horrible, really unpleasant. And within a community, not too many serious fights, but they do compete for dominance, the males. And what about the love and compassion that you observed? Love and compassion, well, a good example is when a 12-year-old male who's unrelated to a little infant who's lost his mother adopts him carries him, shares his food. So the little one was three and a, three and a half years old because under three you, you die without your mum because you're still suckling, dependent on her for everything. But Merlin was, was um, three and a half, so Spindle carried him everywhere, <clears throat> shared his food, shared his nest, rescued him if he got into difficulties, saved his life. Did you build um, relationships with the chimps or friendships? Is that what it felt like for you? It got to the stage when we began the banana feeding, which we wouldn't do today, but back then I think everybody who was beginning to try and study had um, feeding stations. And then I... You know, they were. They, I felt they were like my family, really. So Flo and her family, and Melissa. Yeah, they could go very close to them. The infants would come up and reach out and touch me. What did your mum think of all of this when it was happening? Did, was she back in England at this point? She was back in England then. She was thrilled to bits. I used to write her long letters. They, she kept all my letters, so they've been published now. And you would write back about all that, what was happening, and you would tell her. Mm. I, I suppose, in, in a way, a form of a diary, or did you keep a diary separately, very well, I kept a journal in which, at the beginning, it was like a diary. It wasn't very scientific. It was just everything I saw and felt, little drawings and things like that. And how long were you there altogether? Well, it was, um, I went in 60, and then January 62, I went to Cambridge. And then for the next five years, I was back and forth between Cambridge and Gombe. 
doing my PhD, but also following the development of Flo's baby Flint. And then I went back and started a research station and was there most of every year uh, from 65 until um, 86. Built up a research station. Got married, had a baby <laughs> in that time. It was mostly at Gombe. So you, did you raise your baby there? When he was very tiny, it was, you know, we had to keep him very carefully away from any chimp because they eat meat and they've been known to hunt human babies. Humans hunt their babies, so what's the difference for them? So you didn't want to have the baby around the chimps? The so but we had him in a house in a cage, a house at a tin uniport thing. In a cage? Inside there was a cage. But that was before he could crawl, so it was like a, a very safe... There was always somebody sitting in the house, always. And then when he got a bit older and I was at Gombe, um, we built a, a big caged-in veranda on the beach. The chimps seldom go to the beach. So he spent most of his young life swimming in the lake. They don't like the water? They don't like going to... No, they don't go in the water. And they know that it's nearby and they, they don't want to go near there. But again, he was never on his own, never. Um, you became... In fact, we spent more time then in the Serengeti where Hugo was working by then. So as to, you know, be safer. So you kind of defied all expectations in some ways. The fact that you were a young girl, you had no background in this, you hadn't studied, and you had all these people telling you that you were wrong about what you were beginning to realise. What was it like when people began to listen to you and to understand that you were, in fact, an expert in this, the first expert? Well, it happened gradually, and you know it. It was better after I got my PhD. And, but even so, you know, if I talked about something like culture um, or planning ahead... They didn't say anything. They just kind of shrugged their shoulders and talked about something else. But as I never wanted to be a scientist, it didn't matter that much. Mm. I just wanted to learn about chimps for Leaky and me. Did you ever feel um, the unfairness of it or the kind of, did you find it frustrating that people, you know, weren't taking you as seriously? I just thought they were rather stupid. It got on, and I mean, Hugo was recording it on film, so... And then at the same time, people were discovering closer and closer biological similarities, like 98.6% of DNA structure is exactly the same between chimps and humans. So, you know, chimps helped me to get scientists out of this reductionist way of thinking. So today you can study animal personality... Animal mind, animal emotion. And that would have been absolutely unheard of. It couldn't do it, it didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel to know that you were the person who made that something that people know about and, and study? I feel very lucky. I mean, you clearly weren't doing it for acclaim or praise. Mm. It was something else. So we built up the research station. It's 60th anniversary next year. 
longest unbroken study I think of any animal except possibly the Japanese macaque. The Japanese began even earlier than me, but there were breaks in their study. Um, 60 years is a long time. It's a very long time. And uh, what about now? Because you're someone who was so in tune with the animals, with nature. You lived in that very close proximity to all of these natural resources for such a long time. I'm really interested in what you think now about what's happening to the world. And the well, I mean, the reason I left the best place in the world was because I realised across Africa chimps were vanishing, forests were destroyed. And that was at a conference in 1986, also conditions in captivity, especially medical research. So I went as a scientist, I left as an activist. I knew I had to do something, I had no idea what. Got permission to go into some of the labs and started a long battle, luckily joined by many others, which is only, you know, four years ago, National Institutes of Health had more than 400 chimps in research. And four years ago, they said they can all go to sanctuary. So that was, but it took a long time. Meanwhile, meanwhile things have been getting gradually better. Then I got some money and went to Africa, visited six different chimp range countries to learn firsthand what their problems were, the bushmeat trade, the destruction of the habitat, the building of roads into the forest by foreign mining, logging, oil and gas people, human population growth, moving into the forest and clear-cutting to grow food, and humans taking their diseases into the forest. Chimps catch them, but they haven't built up any resistance. And then realising the plight of so many people living in dire poverty and no good health education, degraded land, more people on it than it can support, came to a head when I flew over Gombe and saw what had been part of a great forest stretching to West Africa was a tiny island of trees and the hills around it, completely bare, totally bare. So that's when it hit me. If we don't help these people find ways of living without destroying the environment, then we can't even try to save the gems. So then we began <clears throat> Take Care, Takari, T-A-C-A-R-E, uh, in, ooh, there's a magpie, uh, <clears throat> in um, 1994, and rather than a group of arrogant white people going into the villages, 12 around Gombe, it was a hand-picked group of seven local people who'd been in NGOs in health, education, forestry, so on. And they went and listened to the people, asked them what they felt we could do, what they wanted most. There was grow more food, it meant restoring fertility to the overused farmland. Better health and education, working with local Tanzanian authorities, pushing them to do what they should have been doing. And gradually we could introduce other programs as the people came to trust us. Grameen Bank, based on Mohammed Yunus, mostly for women. Keeping, getting scholarships to keep girls in school during and after puberty. Uh, providing family planning information. And... With microcredit, women could choose small environmentally sustainable projects like 
buying a few chickens and selling eggs or starting a tree nursery, that sort of thing. Mm. And that's been so successful, it's now in 104 villages through the whole chimp range in Tanzania, and very important because nearly all the chimps are not protected. They're in village forest reserves. So each of these villages provides volunteers, one or two, depending on the size of the village. And there are workshops run by Tanzanians, trained by us, and they're trained to use smartphones. And they chose what they would record, jointly they chose, uh, consensus, yeah, a legally cut tree, an animal trap, a spent cartridge, um, somebody starting to cut trees to farm, some cows in the forest where they shouldn't be, and then on the other side, sighting of a chimp or a chimp nest or a leopard paw print, pangolin, and all of that goes up to a platform in the clouds, Global Forest Watch. <laughs> so with very, very cutting-edge GIS, GPS, satellite imagery. The villagers have been able to make their land-use management plans. They've put land aside around Gombe as a buffer. Um, they, With these forest monitors working on land, because you can see it with the satellite images, land that can form corridors to link the Gombe chimps to other remnant groups. It's a long way from when you started. Yeah, that's now in six other African countries, that sort of program. Incredible. And then finally, meeting young people all around the world who seem to have lost hope. And they felt we were compromising their future and there was nothing they could do about it. We have not just compromised, but stolen a lot of their future. But I believe there was a window of time when if everybody got together, they could start healing some of the harm, slowing down climate change. And so that program began in 1991 with 12 high school students. It's now in about 60 countries. It's, a, it's at least 100,000 groups. Yeah, absolutely. Kindergarten, yeah. university and everything in between. And they all pick three projects, one to help people, one to help animals, want to help the environment, but they choose themselves. We don't dictate. So what they choose will depend how old they are, if they're rich or poor, if they live in the country or the city. And um, and not only do we have this 100,000 or more active groups now, but there's all the ones who've been through, the alumni. Can I ask how hopeful you are that everything will be okay, that the world does have a future, that Greta well, Thunberg... it depends and on us now depends on us now we have to t we have to all think about the imprint we live on the planet every single day we make a difference every single day and with the roots and shoots they talk about the things they feel wrong they choose which projects they'll do they work out how to do them they roll up their sleeves and they take action so as we speak they're planting trees planting trees everywhere doing urban gardening organic food raising money to help the homeless or stray dogs, volunteering in shelters, uh, clearing, cleaning up plastic and trash and recycling and um, all that kind of thing. I mean, just yesterday I got an envelope from a child in Zurich. Oh, it came from somewhere else, I can't remember. Um, but this is just one example 
of what they're doing. They're collecting bottles and making glass beads, and they're beautiful. Beautiful. Jane, you're 85 now. Um, from talking to you, it seems you're as consumed as you ever were by all of this. Uh, and I'm just curious about how um, you live your life now and how much you can actually do. In aeroplanes and airports, giving lectures. You can hear what's happened to my voice. That's why we have to stop or I won't be able to give a lecture. Okay. Um, I got bronchitis and I had to give lectures with bronchitis and my voice has never really recovered, actually. And you don't get much sleep? I don't ever sleep. You don't get much sleep? No, I don't. That's that's because I keep waking up with my mind filled with all the problems there are. And um, you don't seem like you're ever going to stop. It's not like uh, retirement isn't really in your vocabulary. My body will decide it wants to retire at some point, but as long as it works, then I'll use it. If you had one message for people who maybe aren't engaging with yeah, to realise that every single day they make a difference and they need to make ethical choices. What do they buy? Where did it come from? Did it harm the environment? Is, was it cruel to animals? Um, need to understand that the more meat we eat, the more we harm the environment. Huge amounts of land cleared to grow the grain for these billions of animals in what are basically animal concentration camps. Utterly evil. And they're all producing methane gas, and that's a virulent greenhouse gas. We just need to think about how, how we live each day. On the other hand, we have to alleviate poverty, because if you're really poor, you can't make those ethical choices. You just have to buy what you can to survive, or cut down the last tree to live. And that's it for today. Thanks again to our guests, Neve Towie and Jane Goodall. And thanks to the Simmons Leadership Conference who facilitated that interview with Jane. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. And if you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on set. Sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.